The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me, please. From Psalm 5, verse 7. I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Father, you pour steadfast love upon your people in torrents. You flood us with it. You draw us into your house. We were once your enemies and you have given us a seat at your table. Bless your name for that. Your steadfast love that calls us into your very presence in your house. And when we come there, we bow down towards you in fear. So the psalmist writes, we, as a response to your great love, come and draw near to you and in fear bow down before you, stunned by what we see, alarmed in a good way, marveling at your tremendous might and beauty. You reach out to us with a serving plate and we see the holes in your wrists and we marvel. We're in the presence of someone alarmingly beautiful and we fear in love. Bless you for that marvelously complex picture. Father, Son, and Spirit, I pray that you would give grace to us today to to grapple with some of this complexity, to think about it, and to grow. These things are hard to wrap our minds around. I pray, Lord, teach us today. Use this passage to advance a little bit of the balance, love and fear, mercy and might, grace and holiness. Help us to think a little more about that today. Use your scriptures, Lord. Open them to us. Illumine our minds. Lift up Christ in all of his wonder in our hearts. Make us more accurate, full, deep worshipers of him, I pray. For his glory and for our deep and everlasting good. Amen. How do you make pancakes? Not from a box mix or a bag mix, I mean from scratch. If you were to make pancakes from scratch, how do you do that? The recipe that I use in its smallest proportion involves a cup of flour, a couple of tablespoons of baking powder, a little pinch of salt, a tablespoon of sugar, some wet ingredients as well. But those are the dry ingredients. You mix them all together, it makes pretty decent pancakes. But what happens if you start to meddle with those ingredients? 
change things around a little bit. Perhaps you're mistaken or confused and you add in a pinch of sugar and a tablespoon of salt. What do you get? Or, or maybe you're not confused, you just have a sweet tooth and you'd like to heap in a whole bunch of sugar. Or maybe you're a little short of flour and you just really don't want to bother going to the store to get some more so you make up the difference in the baking powder <laughs> or baking soda. Pretty close, why not? Exactness is not required. A, a cup of flour plus a little bit, that's okay. But if you start to meddle with things and change them a lot, you might get cookies, you might get biscuits, you might get hockey pucks, but eventually you won't get pancakes that anybody wants to eat. You've got to mix certain things in approximately correct proportions to come out with the desired conclusion. And similarly, God has certain ingredients that he combines when he sets out to build a Christian or to build a group of Christians, a church. He adds certain things together, mixes them in a bowl, if you will. That's what he uses when he wants to make a Christian. That's what we're going to see. We're going to see two broad categories of ingredients in our passage today in Acts 9. Now, I do not mean to say that this is so exact that God says, if you add in this and this, then I promise to produce that. It's not, God's not nearly that mechanical. This passage isn't nearly that mechanical. It's not that minutely detailed. But it is the case that you have to add in approximately, correctly proportioned, these two ingredients together to make a, a Christian, a growing Christian, developing Christian. And if those are the ingredients, then we must pay attention to them. We must pay attention to them for our own lives and add them into our own lives. And we must pay attention to them as we proclaim to others what it is to be a Christian, what it means to grow as a Christian. And we must pay attention to them as we seek to build a church. Two broad categories of ingredients in our passage today. In the second half of Acts chapter 9. Two weeks ago, we were in the first half of Acts chapter 9, and what we saw there was the remarkable conversion of Saul. Saul had been the leading, the chief persecutor of the church. He was vehemently opposed to Jesus and all of those who followed him, and he led the persecution that broke out after Stephen's murder in Acts chapter 7. He led it in Jerusalem, but he wasn't content to be just there. He was actually chasing Christians into Damascus. He was going there to find whoever he could to bring them back and to place them under arrest and imprison them in Jerusalem. But on the way to Damascus, something remarkable happened. This Jesus that he was opposed to appeared to him. Jesus shows up and in remarkable, sovereign grace opens his blind eyes and saves him. Stunning. But even more stunning is why he saved him. He wanted to use him, he says, I'm going to use you as my instrument to reach Gentiles. People who were way beyond the pale. He saves Saul amazingly so that he could use him to save Gentiles amazingly. Saved for a purpose. Well, Saul hears that and immediately takes up the task of preaching the gospel. He starts that in Damascus. Gets him in a lot of trouble. Spreads to Jerusalem a few years later. Gets him in even more trouble. There are death threats everywhere he goes. He's kind of a lightning rod. He attracts attention. He's that kind of a person. 
It's causing trouble for the church, and so the brothers suggest that he leave for a little while, and they ship him out to Caesarea, and then eventually back to his hometown of Tarsus in Gentile lands in modern-day Turkey. And with Saul removed from the scene, verse 31, it says the church in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria has peace. And that's what we're going to pick up today. With Saul set aside, we're now going to turn to Christ's work through Peter for a couple of chapters, beginning here in verse 31 to verse 43 this morning. So let me read the passage, Acts chapter 9, 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping, showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Verse 31 is another one of those summary verses that we've seen before. It works as a hinge between a couple of different sections. It's telling us what the situation was like once Saul was shipped out and what the situation was like when we pick up with Peter and Peter begins his ministry again or, or we begin to notice his ministry again. The church was at peace and it was being prospered. Being built up. Notice that's a passive statement. Somebody's building it. Who? The Lord, obviously. God is behind this. Christ is, as he said he would be, at work, reigning from heaven, building his church here on earth. He's the one at work. How does he do that? Well, second half of verse 31, through a combination of two things. And here are the two categories of ingredients. Second half of verse 31, and walking in the fear of the Lord, that's the first one, and walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Those are two parallel statements, depending on your translation. It might not reveal that. They're parallel things, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The church multiplied, was built up. 
God adds in a little part of this, a little part of that, the church grows. That's what he's doing. For example, like verse 32 and following. It's kind of how the hinge works here. It sets up what's going to happen and then describes it for us in the following verses. Two stories involving Peter. 32, Peter's taking advantage of the peace to leave Jerusalem and kind of walk among the different churches in the surrounding area. And he comes to Lydda. Now Lydda and the following cities here, Joppa, they were right, Lydda was right on the border to the west, right on the border of Judea, which would have been largely Jewish, and a strip of land along the Mediterranean that would have been Gentile. So Lydda is right on the border, probably a mixed population. Joppa is on the coast, probably all Gentile, largely Gentile. So this is Peter ministering in churches in largely or almost completely Gentile areas. These are folks probably chased out of Jerusalem by the persecution, went there, settled there. So he's in the churches in Gentile lands, and he finds this man named Aeneas, probably a Christian in the church there, who's been bedridden for eight years, paralyzed. Obviously, he, he's severely injured in, in some way. Maybe he had a disease. Something happened to him. He's paralyzed. And Peter speaks to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Take up your bed. Fix it. Fix it up. You can hear the words of Jesus when he healed, healed paralytics. Very similar to what Peter said earlier in this book when he healed people. This is Peter functioning like Jesus, healing somebody like Jesus in Jesus' name. And immediately it happens. The man's muscles are made strong. He rises up, fixes his bed, and everybody hears about it. Everybody sees him, in fact, healed. And many people turn to the Lord. They see the might of Christ as he heals him and the mercy of Christ that he would heal him even. And they turn to the Lord in this mixed city. Well, nearby in Joppa, about 12 miles away or so, there's another Christian named Tabitha who, is, it says, gets sick and dies. Now, in a couple verses we can figure out, verses 36 and 39, make clear what kind of woman she was. She was a woman of great mercy good works and, and charity. She makes things for people. And if you look at verse 41, after she's raised and Peter calls the saints and the widows, seems pretty clear that at least some of the people she helped weren't Christians. Now, some probably were, but she's got two groups of people here. And remember, she's in a Gentile city, so though it's not clear it's likely that this is a believing woman who has such a heart of compassion and care that she serves people in need, insiders and outsiders, even Gentiles. Going a little beyond what's written there, but it's, I think, safe to surmise. She's meeting the needs of people who are hurt and injured, Christian or not, doesn't matter. And she dies. And these folks are heartbroken. Peter arrives, and you've got the widows there standing beside her body, showing him these things that she made, saying, here's what she did for us. Here's what we remember her forgiving to us. We cared so much about her. They're, they're weeping there. Their hearts are broken. Peter does what Jesus did, sends the people out, kneels and prays, saying, Lord, would you pour out your spirit here? Asks Christ to come and act and he does, and she's raised. Takes her by the hand and raises her up and presents her to the widows and to the saints alive. And 
Everybody in this Gentile city hears about it, and many people turn to the Lord in this Gentile city. It's a remarkable display, again, of Christ's power over even death and his compassion for people like hurting widows and deceased Christians. It's important, there's something here that I need to mention as an aside. What we're going to be focusing on, I've already said, is the two ingredients that he's using to build the church here, but as an aside, I need to mention something for the larger flow of the book. This is obviously lifting up Christ in people's eyes. They see him acting to save and, and to heal people. But it's also, in a way, lifting up Peter. Not in the same way, not to the same degree, but it's showing us something about Peter. Essentially, Luke, who's written this, is saying, Peter is a good guy. He's faithful to Christ. He's the one the Lord is using. He's healing people like Jesus, in Jesus' name. He's a good guy. Which is important, because in the very next chapter, Peter's going to take some significant risks, and is going to be brought into question by some of the church, as he's going to step out and do some things in some Gentile lands that seem unreasonable. So we're being prepared right here. Peter's a good guy. He's healing in Jesus' name. He's healing consistently with Old Testament prophets like Elijah. And he doesn't get everything. He's ministering to Christians in Gentile lands. He stays in a tanner's house. A tanner would have been perpetually, ceremonially unclean because he constantly handled dead animals. That was his job making leather and whatnot. So this guy's always unclean. Peter's staying in his house, but is still concerned about ceremonial uncleanliness, as we'll find out. So Peter doesn't get everything, but he's a good guy. Trust him. What he says is true. That's kind of the larger picture of the book of Acts. We need to kind of note that, but we're not going to be addressing that this morning. This morning, what we're going to be focusing on is what I was just talking about, the ingredients how God builds his church. Joins two things together. Combines two main ingredients. Fear of the Lord's might. Fear of his power. His vast reigning authority over everything. Fear. And comfort from the Lord's mercy. His compassion, his care, his concern for lost and hurting people. Fear of the Lord, fear of his might, compassion, concern, comfort. These two broad categories of ingredients are what the Lord joins together to build his church. That's what we're going to look at today. If I put it in a sentence, let me put it like this Fear his might. Be comforted by his mercy and grow. Both those things. We can't become lopsided one way or, or the other. Both fear his might and be comforted by his mercy and will grow. Let's begin with the first ingredient that he adds in, fear. Here's the first point. Walk in fear of the might of Christ. Walk in fear. Live in fear. 
Live continually, perpetually mindful of the vast, supreme might of Christ and fear it. Now, before I lose everybody, because probably a lot of us just thought, that sounded kind of like a note struck off chord. Before I lose everybody, let me define fear. We have to work on that word. A number of us, I'm sure, hear that and say, you're telling me that I'm supposed to live in fear? Are you crazy? Well, let me just point out that verse 31 said, walking in the fear of the Lord. The way to put that would be living in the fear of the Lord. That's chapter 9, verse 31. So we've got to think about that word fear. It's not a bad thing. It's not coming from me, from my ideas. It's coming from the Bible. And in fact, it's coming from all over the Bible. Think about this. Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, which is a good thing, so you should want to fear the Lord. Or think of the explicit command in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. There's a series of commands there. Peter says, honor everyone, Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Don't fear the emperor, honor him. Don't fear the brotherhood, love people, fear God, a command. It's all over the Bible. So we need to kind of work on that and figure out why is it all over the Bible? Why is that even a good thing in the Bible's eyes? That I would fear, that I would walk in, that I would live in fear of the Lord. Why is that good? Because of what the fear is. It is not some slavish, some cowering, cringing fear like a dog that's been beat one too many times by its master and so kind of cringes. It's not that kind of fear. It's not a fear that's rooted in abuse or hurt or harm or evil. That's wrong. God's not about that. The Bible's not about that. We shouldn't be about that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the fear of the Lord. Rather, the fear that we must walk in is the fear of reverence and wonder and thoroughgoing, sober-minded attention to something. Sober-minded attention to something. Like you interact with electricity. You don't cringe every time you walk under power lines. And you don't cringe every time you come into a room that's lit with electricity. You do it all the time. But you're sober-minded about it when you're coming near it in some ways. Like... This last winter, I'm up clearing the ice out of my gutters because there's a little ice dam built up there. I'm clearing the ice out, and there's a power line that attaches into my house. And as I got closer to that, I started paying attention to it. Why? I'm really thankful there's a power line going to my house. We use electricity to, to run lights in our house. We use electricity to run the blower on our furnace in the winter. We use electricity to power our stove. I'm really thankful for that power line. But I know that if my ladder gets close enough to it and I slip and I grab that thing, I'm in trouble. And I'll probably die. 
If you're outside working and you've got poles and ladders, you've seen the commercials on TV, the, the, the construction safety commercials, look up. Why? Because you'll die if you mess with that. Electricity is a wonderful and good and great thing, and we should be thankful for it, but we must not insist on disregarding it, ignoring it, treating it commonly. Biblically speaking, then, the fear of the Lord is a mindfulness, a sober-minded, clear-thinking mindfulness that this Christ that I am dealing with is not, as a friend of mine used to joke, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, in a field full of flowers, playing with bunnies, with a nice white lamb draped over his shoulder, smiling. He's the crucified and risen and reigning Christ. The warrior of heaven, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Like Oslin, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. He is good, but he is by no means safe. Be sober-minded as you interact with him, as you deal with him, as you consider him. He is not to be trifled with. We should not approach him chewing gum, talking on our cell phone, and, hi God, how's it going? He's the Lord. Supreme and sovereign over all things. Lifted up and reigning over paralysis and death even. That's where it connects to this passage. To Christ, paralysis is irrelevant. He thinks and it goes away. Death, no problem. There is such might in this one. Paralysis and death are nothing to him. They stop us cold. They're nothing to him. This supremacy of Christ, this high and lifted up view, this transcendent concept of God is a critical ingredient added into our lives. In fact, it is central to the gospel. Think of the gospel in the Old Testament. Isaiah 52, verse 7 Heard it alluded to in one of the songs this morning. You may know it from Romans 7, Romans 10, where Paul quotes it. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who bring gospel. What's the good news they bring? Who say to Zion, your God reigns. That's the news these beautiful feet carry. Your God reigns. God in Christ reigns. This Christ who came and humbled himself and went to the cross has been lifted up and sits at the right hand, reigning. That's good news. Declare it. It's what we as Christians and what we as non-Christians need to hear. He reigns. Sovereign. We see that in this story and how he controls death and how he controls paralysis. It's one of the two things that he needs into our hearts to grow us. How? How does that grow us? Why? Where, where does that kind of grab me and change me? What's, how does that work? 
It works like this. You've got to consider that life is essentially like you walking down the main drag at a carnival. You're walking down the strip there, and every 10 feet, there's another booth with another barker calling out to you. Hey, 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 over here, over here, over here, over here. Trying to draw you off, to cause you to pay attention to him and to stop there, to give your mind, to give your heart, to give your life to it. Calling out to you, we might use the word tempting you. Give attention and respect. Live for, be controlled by fear. Me, says that barker. And, and the next one, and the next one, and all those over there on that side of the street. All of them are calling out to you. That's what life is like. You're walking down a road, constantly being bombarded by all kinds of things that want your allegiance and that seek to control you. Think of some of them. Comfort and pleasure. Ordinary stuff. Stuff that's good even. But if you give your life to it, it's bad. Money. That can buy you comfort and pleasure. Security. Relationships. Love. Encouragement. You can name almost anything in life. Things that are good, but if you give your life to them, if they draw you off and control you, they are sin. And they'll kill you. You're constantly being tempted and drawn by those things, and then you begin to fear other things or other people who can give those things to you or take them away from you. You fear your boss because he might give or take away at work. You fear your spouse because that person might give or take away comfort and love and encouragement. Relatives and neighbors. They might give or take away reputation and public status. And so you fear them and respond to them. And we're constantly being called and challenged. Give attention to, live for, be controlled by this or this or this. And at the end of the street is the risen Christ. Speaking to you in a still, quiet voice. Trying to grow you in your ability to hear and to understand his thundering whisper. That comes underneath of all the other callings and says, Pay no attention to them. You follow me. He's looking right down the street at you. Over here, over here, over here. Me. Pay attention to, respond to. Be tied to fear me. Sober-minded attention right here. Don't worry about all that. I got that covered. I have the power to handle any and everything else. Right here, you. Fear me alone. Honor the emperor. Love the brotherhood. Fear me. Don't cringe. Give sober-minded, careful attention to reverence me alone, none of those other things. As God grows you in the fear of Christ, what he's doing is he's growing you in the ability to not fear all that other stuff, 
to not be turned aside to sin at any of those little off-ramps on the highway of life. He's growing in you a north star that will keep your compass in the right direction, not get you wandering. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. It's one of the main categories that he builds into people as he builds Christians and as he builds churches. But it's not the only thing. And we can't become lopsided that way and only talk about that. We need to consider the other half, the second category of ingredients here. That's the second point. The second ingredient that's added into the mix is that of the Lord's great compassion. His mercy. So here's the second point. Walk in comfort from the mercy of Christ. Walk in, live constantly aware of, mindful of, profound and glorious mercy from this Christ. See the power here in the, in the raising and in the healing, but the main note, I think, in these stories is one of mercy and compassion. That's the, that's the one that's right on the surface, if you will. The parent here, he has no obligation to heal any of these folks. He doesn't. And there are many people that he doesn't do this for. But he does hear, the Lord has mercy on Aeneas and Tabitha. Obviously, curing their physical ailments. And he has also physical mercy on their communities, the church families that they're a part of who miss them. Even the non-believing communities, the widows, that Tabitha was a, a great benefit to. He clearly is inclined to have physical, compassionate mercy on people. Just because he is. These widows hadn't done anything to earn it. Tabitha even, though she did good works, the Bible's clear, she didn't earn anything. But the Lord heals her anyway. So there is the physical mercy, the physical compassion right there that, that we should note. That's something that we should see about Christ. But if we stop there and don't move on to the, uh, the second level above it, we're missing something. We're, we're falling short. There's more mercy in this story than just the surface physical. Why did any of this happen in the first place? Surely, if the Lord has all this power, and surely if he knows everything, which he does, eight years ago he knew that Aeneas was going to become paralyzed tomorrow, and he could have stopped it. Why didn't he? Surely, at some point, he realized that tomorrow or next week, Tabitha is going to get sick. Why didn't he stop it? He could have. He could have had mercy back then, but he didn't. Why not? Because he's got some other goal, some larger goal in mind than just the physical mercy. He wants to have mercy in the spiritual realm on people. He's doing something here in these stories. He's creating an event. Let me put this in a slightly different way. If Tabitha had just gotten a little sick one day and then a few days later gotten a little better, People would have said, the, the widows and the church would have said, oh, she got sick and oh, she got better. It happens all the time, no big deal. If Aeneas had been, let's say, about to fall off a ladder and the Lord had studied the ladder and he hadn't fallen off and hadn't become paralyzed, what would people have said? Whew, that was close. 
Jesus would have been just as merciful, but nobody would have seen it. There would have been no glory given to Christ for his mercy, and most importantly, no one would have been drawn to Christ, which is what they most need. So he's creating an event here, two events, in which he can have mercy, not just physically, but in which he can have mercy spiritually on people. To point out to them something about his nature. I'm the kind of person who raises people up. That's a repeated word in this text. Aeneas rose up. Peter rose and went to Joppa. He raised up Tabitha alive. It's a repeated word. He's saying, I'm a raiser. I raise people physically. And what you've heard about me being a spiritual raiser, that's true too. I have the power to do this. I have the power to do that. Come to me. I'm also inclined to do that, as I've just displayed. By letting her die and then raising her, by letting him become paralyzed and then healing him, he's creating an opportunity in which he can lift up a sign about his spiritual inclination, his mercy inclination in the spiritual realm. What's going on in chapter 9 here? How does that connect to comfort? How does that connect to the comfort of the Holy Spirit? Well, one obvious way would be if he physically healed you, that would be comforting. That would be encouraging. If he physically changed your circumstances, you'd be thankful for that. That'd be a good thing. But I think there's more than that, because if you think about comfort, what comfort's connected to is hardship. And if the hardship is fixed, you don't actually need comfort. Things are going great. You need comfort when things aren't going great. Things aren't going well at all. The Holy Spirit brings comfort. What's that have to do with this story? Well, think again. What's he doing? He's pointing people to Christ. He's taking events in life and using them to direct people's attention to Jesus, who is the one they really need. That's what the Spirit does in these widows' hearts and in the other residents in Joppa and whatnot, the other cities. That's what the Spirit does today. He uses events in life to direct our hearts to Christ, the one we really need. That's how he gives us comfort. Sometimes changing circumstances, usually not. Usually showing us Christ in the midst of the circumstances. Growing our hearts and enabling our hearts to expand and see more of him. To see more of his nature and character that is merciful and gracious and kind and has extended to us, has laid himself out for us. He brings to mind things like, is not Christ for you? Then who can be against you? Is not Christ the greatest treasure? Then what's that loss? He gives us the ability to live off of him who is invisible, but is more real than anything you can see. He's lifting up Jesus and pointing people to him. Specifically, his mercy inclination. 
so that you sit in the midst of a hardship and you say, this is hard. And Jesus stands right beside me, so identifying. Remember the beginning of the chapter, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So identifying with my hardship that he feels it himself. Full of compassion for me. Wanting to heal and to raise me up spiritually. He's done that already. In a remarkable way, he saved me, if you're a Christian. And he wants to do that spiritually right now, to lift up my countenance and give me hope. Even amidst the hardship. He does that by pointing you to Christ. So Christian, do you live, do you abide in, do you walk in this in the midst of your hardships? Or do the hardships dominate you? The challenges in life, the pains. Which is it? Do you live reckoning, I have a Savior who is for me? What can separate me from his love? Nothing. Not this, nothing. That's the Spirit giving you comfort as He works that reminder in you. He brings that text to mind and causes it to be significant, more significant than the hardship. Pointing you to Christ, growing your heart. So do you live there? Do you fight to get there? The Spirit does that, but the Spirit commonly uses things like the Scripture, things like other Christians. Commonly meets us when we pray. Do you fight for that kind of comfort from the Spirit? Or do you not? You let the circumstances dominate. You've got to fight for that. He'll comfort you when you turn to Him and say, God, help. Lift up my heart. But if you're not a Christian here this morning... Do you see the sign in this text? Christ is inclined to raise people. He doesn't raise everybody, but he raises people free of obligation. Dead people don't earn their resurrection, but he did it anyway. Paralyzed people don't do anything to earn their raising up, but he did it anyway. And then he raised a whole bunch of other people in all these cities when they turned to him. There's a sign here. He can raise you. He's motivated to raise you, and he has the power to do so. So do like these folks did. Believe in the Lord. Turn to the Lord and say, you and you only can raise people. Have mercy on me, a sinner. He's made a way for that to happen at the cross. Your sin can be lifted off of you and placed on him and he can raise you up. Turn to him and trust him. Live and walk mindful of the mercy of God in Christ. That's the second ingredient. He mixes both of those things together. And so we have to be mindful of his process. That leads us to the third point. I'm going to be brief here. If these are the two things that he combines together, walking in the fear of the Lord, walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, mindful of his might and his transcendence, mindful of his mercy and his imminence, we, 
should be mindful of both of those things ourselves, build them into ourselves, build them into those we disciple, build them into those that we share the gospel with. Both of them. We have to declare a mighty and lifted up and powerful Christ who has bent his power towards mercy, not for condemnation. He made that clear himself when he was here. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. We make that clear. He has power to save. Both. Not one or the other. The problem is that all of us are inclined towards one or the other. We kind of meddle with the recipe. We tend to do better talking about one or the other. If you know me, which one do you think I'm better at? And which one am I worse at? I'm better at the first point. And I struggle more with the mercy and the love aspect. I, for whatever reason, that's harder for me. It doesn't resonate with me as much. It's harder for me to grasp it and to explain it. I do better with the supremacy one. Which one's your bias? It's important to note so that you can cover the blind spot. To get yourself around people who have opposite strengths so that they can feed them into your life. Because what happens is if we only talk about and we only build into ourselves one or the other, we end up like a man walking on stilts with significantly different length stilts. 30 and 29 inches, no big deal. 34 and 22, that's getting to be a problem. 40 and 5 doesn't work. Can't walk. That's what we're like. Only one person ever walked the earth with this completely imbalanced Jesus, full of grace and truth. Jesus had a correct view of his mercy and his might. We're all skewed in some way or another. If you're skewed towards the, the supremacy one, what you end up with is, is a God who's made out of gold. Bright and shiny and valuable and cold and heavy. And if you're skewed towards the mercy part, you end up with a God who's made out of marshmallows. Soft and sweet, but really not much more than sugar and air. And you put water and it melts. We need shining, valuable, sweet gospel news. We need a shining and valuable, sweet and tender Christ. Which means we need all of us to talk to all of us always. And we need all of us together to talk to other people always. So we present Christ accurately. Both of these things joined together grow Christians. Both of these things joined together grow churches. Fear him in his might. Walk in comfort from his mercy and grow. Let me pray. Lord, sometimes I finish talking and realize how much I don't understand about you. How skewed my view is of you. How much I need your spirit to illumine my mind and 
flesh out who you are. And because I'm a person like all the other people in this room, I know that there's some commonality here. We all have a need for you to flesh out who you are. To add in a little bit more of one or the other, probably of both. So would you do that, Father? Would you grow the Christians here? Would you grow this church here by filling up our deficiencies, by adding in more of the ingredients that we lack? In your great love, would you draw us near to you? In your astounding mercy, would you bring us to your table and then cause us to fear from what we see there? Both. For those here who don't know you yet at all, Lord, would you bring them to a correct knowledge of you? Would you open their eyes to see you as transcendent and full of glory, lifted up high and exalted and drawn near, humbled in mercy? Cause us to see both and to grow by partaking of both. That's our need. That's my prayer. Would you do that, Father? In Jesus' name I pray it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.